millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In our last episode, we heard about how a young Aussie banker, Lex Greensill, unelected and unappointed, appeared at the heart of David Cameron's government, promoting his bonzer new idea, supply chain finance. Civil servants were bewildered and they didn't know exactly why he was there. Was he there to help the taxpayer? Was he there to help Citigroup, his bank where he'd been a managing director in charge of supply chain finance? Or was he there to help himself, having just founded his own supply chain finance company? Today, in the second half of our telling of the story, we discover just how far Greensill's influence stretched and how, after they both departed the centre of power, the former PM ended up on the payroll of the banker. Basically, Greensill becomes the primary vehicle through which Cameron makes his post-number 10 money. And what happened when it all went horribly wrong? Various banks and insurers who were supporting or funding or underwriting Greensill started withdrawing their backing. And it was from there that the company unravelled and was forced to file for insolvency. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Cameron and the Toxic Banker, Part 2. Collapse and Aftermath. Now, if you haven't heard part one, here's a brief what you need to know. By the end of episode one, we'd heard how Lex Greensill, a young banker who'd been brought informally into government by Britain's top civil servant, Sir Jeremy Hayward, had, in 2012, managed to convince those in charge to adopt his idea of using supply chain finance to pay pharmacists dispensing NHS prescriptions more rapidly. Then, in the subsequent four years, he hung around as something called a Crown Representative, someone to advise the government on... ..how to run the show more effectively. So far, there are few details of what he actually did all that while. But he left government around the same time as the former Prime Minister David Cameron. So we'll begin in the summer of 2016, when one of the country's youngest ever Prime Ministers did the Downing Street goodbye wave. It has been the greatest honour of my life to serve our country as Prime Minister over these last six years and to serve as leader of my party for almost 11 years. And as we leave for the last time, my only wish 
is continued success for this great country that I love so very much. Thank you. With Britain departing the EU after a referendum he called, but a result was disastrous for him, what did life hold next for a former PM? It's not kind of that clear what his legacy is or what he's sort of supposed to do. And he's also very young. I mean, David, you're a great politico, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was the youngest prime minister since the Earl of Liverpool. That's Gabriel Pogrand again. Gabriel is the Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent whose reporting has led to calls for an inquiry into the actions of the former Prime Minister David Cameron. He retired in his late 40s. I mean, he's only 54 now. So he's also got a life to live and decades left on this planet and needs to make some money, or at least so he adjudicated. And it was in that context that he, in 2018, joined Lex Greensill's company as an advisor and also was given share options at one point worth tens of millions of pounds. Basically, Greensill becomes the primary vehicle through which Cameron makes his post-number 10 money. Now, one of the things we know, and we'll come on to in a moment, is that Cameron, in his role as advisor to Greensill, met with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, is that the kind of thing that former prime ministers can help a company like Greensill do? It's exactly that sort of thing as well. It's not only... When you meet investors, being able to say, look at me, I've even got a former prime minister on my board or as an advisor to me, it's opening some of those doors. By God, I'd love to know exactly how this secret camping trip on the Arabian Peninsula took place. But for sure, Cameron would have also been a passport to many of the people whose money Greensill wanted. I mean, the reason for uh, this camping trip, which was unveiled by the Financial Times, was for Greensill to pitch using supply chain finance in Saudi Aramco, the uh, state-owned oil company. So Cameron both would have helped the company's image as a former PM in certain circles and also would have helped unlock various doors too. Let's go back a bit now to the ethics of such a thing. Cameron is Prime Minister in 2016 and has Greensill working with him. He's not paying him, but working with him. By 2018, Cameron is now working for and is well remunerated for working for Greensill. Are there any codes that suggest you shouldn't do that? Yes and no. After a cash for question scandal. That was when, in 1994, two Conservative MPs were accused of taking money and gifts in exchange for asking questions in Parliament. John Major asked Lord Nolan to produce kind of seven principles which should govern conduct in public life. And those seven principles include honesty, accountability, integrity. I mean, they're kind of fairly broad, brushstroke principles on how one should conduct themselves. Now, many people would say that the chain of events you just outlined is intrinsically exists in contrast to some of those principles. But in terms of the letter of the law or regulations, I don't think that Cameron has been found to have been in conflict or breach of any. I mean, he was briefly under investigation by the lobbying registrar, which was an organisation he helped create. But because he was an employee of Greensills rather than a formal lobbyist, he didn't fall foul of any rules. Cameron thematically or generally is seen by some to have breached various broad principles. He has not, as far as we know, broken any rules. It doesn't look great, but actually it doesn't seem to have any kind of formal breach associated with it. Right. And 
This is all going on for a couple of years, and then it all goes pear-shaped. And it goes pear-shaped because Greensill gets into financial trouble. So now let's talk about the financial trouble that Greensill got into and how that happened. For years, Lex Greensill has been fated as a financial wunderkind. The boy from Bundaberg receiving global awards and even being made a commander of the British Empire. But what's brought Greensill unstuck is not the financing of small business payments, but some huge loans. It's a spectacular fall from grace for Greensill. Many businesses in many territories have been exposed. What happened? Supply chain finance, as we've been saying, on the face of it, should be fairly low risk investment. I mean, people say almost second to government bonds. It's very low risk, low margins. You give up your money to a bank like Greensill, Greensill will use that money to pay a company slightly quicker than it otherwise would have been paid, do that in exchange for a tiny fee, and then in due course, the bank gets reimbursed by the customer. What Greensill did, though, was he started bundling up these loans he was giving to businesses and selling them on as assets to other companies. And it also transpired that a lot of these bundled up loans were payments to one company or one set of companies owned by a man called Sanjeev Gupta, who's a Indian-born British steel magnate. Once dubbed the saviour of steel, now fighting to save his steel empire, it's crunch time for Sanjeev Gupta and his proud but beleaguered Liberty Steel. Gupta's own company is in the process of unravelling, but it transpires that a lot of the supply chain finance payments which Greensill was making to Gupta weren't to accelerate payment by a few days or weeks or months. In some cases, he was paying Gupta for future payments anticipated in several years. Hold on, let's, let's be clear. Are we saying that he financed Gupta for work that hadn't yet been done? Yes, or rather for future consignments of steel or future trades, which were, you know, in some instances, years down the line. But wasn't the whole point that you were supposed to do it for stuff that had actually been done, you just paid quickly? That's exactly right. I mean, typically it's for things which have already been done or which are so obviously going to happen that it's basically there's no risk or minimal risk in paying a little bit beforehand. But in this case, you've got steel, which, like any commodity subject to major price fluctuations is has been a troubled industry in the UK for decades. You've got future steel transactions being paid upfront. And also, I will stress, unfortunately, I've not seen the evidence for this myself, but the Financial Times reported that some of these future payments, which Sanjeev Gupta's companies claimed they were in line to receive. The companies that were supposed to be paying them said they'd never done business with the company. So you know, you currently got auditors going through all of the loans and supply chain finance payments executed by Greensill. And the suspicion or the allegation is that potentially somebody somewhere has been falsely characterising future payments. Sanjeev Gupta. His business owns Greensill's $6.5 billion, which it doesn't have. And Greensill's major funder, Credit Suisse, essentially pulled the pin leaving Greensill to file for bankruptcy. Regulators in Germany, the UK and Australia are now pouring over Greensill. What happened was various banks and insurers who were supporting or funding or underwriting Greensill started withdrawing their backing. And it was from there that the company unravelled and was forced to file for insolvency. 
So Greensill was borrowing money to give early payment to Gupta for work that it hadn't yet done and that it was beginning to turn out wasn't going to be paid for at all. So the people lending Greensill to give this money to Gupta stopped giving the money to Greensill and that brought down both Greensill and Gupta. And I won't say any more. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, but I guess no more extraordinary than subprime and, and stuff like that. And a lot of jobs go with Gupta, don't they? By the way, you said subprime. I mean, it is a lot like that in that what Greensill did was he collateralised, he bundled up all these loans and he started flogging them um, to institutional investors who didn't necessarily know what it was they were getting into. And on the topic of jobs, yes, Sanjeev Gupta, he's got investments all across the world, run steel mills in the UK, Australia, um, Europe and elsewhere. And in the UK, we should say, he hasn't filed for insolvency yet, but many people see that as being inevitable now given how dependent he was on Greensill's funding. Um, in, in the UK, his steel business employs 5,000 people, and globally, the collapse of Greensill, it is thought, could cost around 55,000 jobs. Coming up, we'll hear what happened when the former PM personally lobbied the current Chancellor on behalf of Greensill. To get to the heart of the stories like this one every day with The Times and The Sunday Times, subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Into... This strange, strange set of financial arrangements steps the advisor to Greensill, former Prime Minister David Cameron. And David Cameron starts lobbying for what, exactly? David Cameron begins this frenzied lobbying campaign to help out Greensill, whose business was in trouble. And he goes to the Treasury and he goes to Rishi Sunak, trying to get 
Greensill access to various COVID recovery schemes. So the first one was something called CCFF. This was the COVID Corporate Financing Facility. The COVID-19 Corporate Financing Facility works by having the Bank of England buy short-term debt from large companies, helping those experiencing a short-term funding squeeze. And Greensill wanted access to funds under this scheme. It was deemed ineligible and Cameron was trying to persuade the government that Greensill, in fact, should be eligible. The second scheme that Cameron was lobbying for help from was CL bills, which is the Coronavirus Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme. This scheme is designed to help medium and large-sized businesses to access loans and other kinds of finance. The government would guarantee 80% of the finance to the lender. Greensill wanted to become a government lender under this scheme. So in effect, it wanted to be able to issue loans which were backed by the government to other businesses. And indeed, it did become an accredited lender under CL bills and used this programme to loan more money to Sanjeev Gupta. The maximum he was meant to be able to lend to one company, Greensill, was 50 million. But because Sanjeev Gupta had this whole kind of network of businesses, he ended up loaning five times the amount which was ordinarily sanctioned. And so Cameron was lobbying for Greensill to be able to loan more under CL bills, as well as for the company to get money under CCFF. I mean, he effectively wanted Greensill to benefit from this incredible explosion of state spending to keep liquidity in the economy going and to keep the economy alive. Last week, Sunak took the unprecedented, some might say preemptive step of publishing two text messages he sent in response to messages from Cameron. The first, sent on April the 3rd, 2020, reads... Hi David, thanks for your message. I'm stuck back to back on calls, but we'll try you later this evening. And if it gets too late, first thing tomorrow. Best, Rishi. A second suggests that the Treasury is looking at Cameron's proposal. Hi, David. Apologies for the delay. I think the proposals in the end did require a change to the market notice, but I've pushed the team to explore an alternative with the bank that might work. No guarantees, but the bank are currently looking at it, and Charles should be in touch. Best, Rishi. It led to almost two months of negotiations between the second most senior official in the Treasury and Greensill as a way was sought to help the ailing finance company out. But eventually, the Treasury decided it couldn't help, and Sunak called Cameron personally to let him know. David Cameron's messages had not been published. Sunak had also written to the Shadow Chancellor, Annalisa Dawes, to tell her Cameron had actually been in contact with three Treasury ministers, half the Treasury team, and had messaged him, Sunak, multiple times. Not so much lobbying as badgering. And we had further revelations this weekend too. Um, My colleague Caroline Wheeler was leaked an email revealing that Cameron had sent messages to one of Boris Johnson's SPADs, special advisers, imploring him to grant help to Greensill under this COVID corporate financing facility. And he, he even said it would be nuts to exclude them and use the language that we need Rishi Sunak to get his officials to reconsider. Alongside this, I mean, this all concerns stuff which happened during the pandemic. 
uh, I've also established that in 2019, David Cameron took Greensill to a private meeting with Matt Hancock, where he lobbied him to introduce yet another scheme involving the NHS. This one, a payroll service, uh, which was rolled out um, within numerous NHS trusts. And this meeting wasn't recorded or minuted or declared in any transparency data. So there are so many questions. You know, how was it that Greensill, this upstart banker, uh, was able to offer all these risky loans to Sanjeev Gupta? How was he allowed to become the face of numerous government schemes? And how was it that happened under the nose of ministers, civil servants, and indeed a former prime minister? So it is pretty serious. Let's just look at this position of Cameron, the former prime minister, lobbying for money for the company from which he's an advisor and in which he has share options, which he may lose altogether if he doesn't get the money, but on the other hand, which could be worth quite a lot if he does, the business survives and then thrives. Is there any rule that he has broken as a consequence of lobbying in this way? So... The lobbying rules or the lobbying registrar, as I understand it, has the remit to investigate the activities of lobbyists who are external representatives of companies. But insofar as Cameron was paid directly by or was an employee of Greensill, he is not within the scope uh, of the lobbying registrar's investigatory powers. And so as far as we know now, Cameron has not breached any rules. And does that also mean that there won't be an inquiry? One of the moments where a lot of people are weighing up whether our architecture for investigating breaches of standards or perceived breaches of standards in public life is fit for purpose because the Treasury Select Committee, which has a Conservative majority, has so far foreclosed, used its majority to foreclose an investigation into Green Cell's collapse. Lobby Registrar said that it doesn't, unfortunately, or just factually doesn't have the ability to investigate this. The British Business Bank, it seems, last year started looking into the relationship between Green Cell and the Guptas, but they wouldn't particularly be the authority to look into Cameron's own conduct. And so certainly, I mean, it might be that the Select Committee looks into this, there's a Public Accounts Committee, there's a Treasury Select Committee. There are bodies that could generally examine this. Uh, whether though Cameron can be summoned or forced to account for what he's done, I don't know. After over a month of silence, including not responding to Gabriel's questions, yesterday David Cameron finally issued a statement to the AP news agency responding to the criticism. He said, In my representations to government, I was breaking no codes of conduct and no government rules. However, I have reflected on this at length. There are important lessons to be learned. As a former Prime Minister, I accept that communications with government need to be done through only the most formal of channels, so there can be no room for misinterpretation. Make of that what you will. But in any case, Gabriel, I mean, let's call a spade a spade here. This stinks, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really stinks. Somebody said to me that Tony Blair, even by his standards of lobbying for, rather dictators across the world would never have dreamed of going to a Serbian chancellor to ask for help. Now, that might be something to do with the TBGBs and the relationship between Blair and his successor, but it seems like a moment of incredible naivety at the very least and political stupidity for Cameron to have asked for a favour from 
the most powerful man in the country, bar the prime minister. I mean, it really stinks. And it doesn't only stink because of what he did, but rather the company that he did it for. Greensill is not just a company. It's a company which is potentially going to have cost tens of thousands of jobs across the world. And so the notion that Cameron went and roasted marshmallows on a fire with MBS and Lex Greensill and lobby Rishi Sunak on this guy's behalf is very troubling indeed. And I think poses some important questions about how we regulate the behaviour of former office holders in our country. Well, the answer seems to be we don't seem to regulate very much the behaviour of former office holders, and that if that former office holder belongs to the party that's in government and has the majority on committees, then in that case it's very unlikely to be investigated. Yeah, I mean, our, our laws are pretty lax and there's a lot of self-policing. There is a body, ACOBA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, which looks at what jobs might be inappropriate for ministers to take after they've left office. So you're meant to, if you get a role as a former minister in the private sector, you're meant to go to a COBA and consult with them beforehand. Now, I'm pretty sure that responsibility lapses after two years. But even then, it's run by Eric Pickles, who uh, was a former Tory cabinet minister who served under David Cameron as his community secretary. And I'm not even for a moment doubting the integrity of Lord Pickles. Frankly, I don't know too much about him. But the notion that advisory body, which can't bind you to do anything and is run by a former Tory minister, now a Tory peer, would be an appropriate way of regulating the revolving door um, seems rather fanciful. And there's nothing, as far as I'm aware, to stop Cameron doing what he did, which is the key issue at hand. Gabriel, before we wind up by finding out what the comment has been from the various groups involved, we talked about Cameron. We've had quite a lot of discussion in the light of what's been happening in the pandemic about the sheer informality of the giving of contracts and the bringing in to government as advisors, etc., of people who are close to members of that government, some in the case of Kate Bingham on vaccination, obviously successfully, others significantly less successfully. And then there's the question of contracts for companies where people have known ministers and so on. How does this reflect upon all that? Does the Greensill affair tell us that there's been a kind of creeping level of informality and cronyism at the heart of government, which Government will defend because they say, well, we know these people are good, but which actually, in the end, becomes just letting your mates have what your mates want. You know, this story is kind of interesting because in some ways it overlaps very neatly on top of what we've seen during the pandemic. And in other ways, it is entirely distinct. For instance, the template of a lot of these cronyism stories now is ministers bringing in their mates overruling civil servants in order to get their friends in and potentially enrich those friends or at least give those friends power over people's lives. But this is sort of different in some ways in that it was actually a civil servant who seemingly in the face of resistance from politicians brought Greensill into the heart of government and propelled him on his great rise to wealth and fame. You know, in some ways, the contours of this story are quite unusual, but certainly more recently, when you look at what Cameron's done, texting the Chancellor, it does resemble more of what we've seen over the last while. I do wonder whether there's a kind of drip, 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 and that at some point the dam is going to burst and we're going to have a moment or a conversation in our country about overhauling the rules that currently regulate public life. Um, I'm not that optimistic. I think it's all pretty interesting. I think Greensill is kind of going to become another key 
plank in this succession of stories about people in and around the Conservative Party enriching themselves and their friends. Okay, so now let's just end up by finding out what the various people have said about it. Jeremy Haywood's widow has recently published a book about him. We know he's very much a kind of keeper of his uh, legacy. Has she spoken at all about it? She's spoken to me, and the book doesn't mention Lex Greensill, but Suzanne Haywood, Jeremy Haywood's widow, has made clear and has, I think, rightfully asked me to make clear that her husband did not benefit financially from Lex Greensill, didn't work for him, didn't have any financial arrangement or relationship with him. Citigroup? Citigroup haven't commented on, I think, any of the core allegations on the record. And Lex Greensill himself? Lex Greensill isn't commenting, and I think the claim emanating from people in and around the company is that they're not able to do so because the company's being wound up at the moment, and Grant Thornton, the accountancy company, uh, has made clear that people at the company aren't allowed to speak to the press. Well, I'm sure as soon as it's successfully wound up, he will want to come to you and give you his full version. Oh, I'm sure. It'll be fulsome and detailed, and, yeah, it'll be a nice, cosy sit-down, I'm sure. That's the story so far. None of it was in the public domain, or probably ever would have been, unless Gabriel and the Sunday Times and then other journalists had put it there. No story, no current Chancellor releasing his text promising to push his team on behalf of a former Prime Minister. A former Prime Minister lobbying to the benefit of a banker who he was working for, but who a few years earlier had been working for him in Downing Street. As of this moment, apparently no laws have been broken, no code of conduct violated, not even any guidelines bent out of shape. Which is odd, because it feels all wrong, doesn't it? In fact, it stinks. I mean, could you, Joanna or Johnny No Mates in Government, do that if you were in financial trouble? If you texted the Chancellor asking for a shed load of money, would he text you back and say, I'll try? Or is this just what rich, powerful people do for each other, quite often on our dime? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand. You can read all of Gabriel's reporting on Lex Greensill at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Edward Drummond and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltuk. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.